You haven't had a face-to-face conversation in nine months. But the second best thing is popping on the headset and falling into a whirlwind adventure filled with a dynamic cast of characters to talk to, you tell yourself. Unlike the world outside, these people will shower you with praise and affirmation. A world where things you say and do actually matter! As long as it's something the game wants you to do. Hello and welcome to Head Mounted Destinations, a podcast about VR and VR game development. We we provide our perspective as developers and a peek behind the curtain for people interested in how VR games are made. I'm your friendly neighborhood game designer, Carlos, and this is my co-host, Matt. I'm a gameplay programmer, and uh, today we're talking about narrative in games. So stories are an incredibly important part of most human experiences. It's how people get meaning in a lot of cases, whether it's a actual endeavor building some organization or just watching a play unfold. The story, that emotional element, is is where meaning derives from. And so for games, it's important to have this. There is some value to be found in just simply being playful and and getting into the sort of flow where you're being challenged at an appropriate level. But often, story is an important factor to get people to, to come into the magic circle, to imbue this game that doesn't have any meaning in the real world, to give it meaning personally. So speaking of stories... The most crucial stories are those that involve humans or, or things that are anthropomorphic because we're humans. Uh, but this is a huge issue for games, representing humans in a way that effectively taps into our emotional currents. Um, so we're going to quickly cover some of the issues that games struggle with at large when it comes to narratives, and especially narratives involving people. Yeah, so uh, something that games like both VR and non-VR as a whole struggle with is ludonarrative dissonance. And what this means, ludo being play, narrative being, you know, the story, dissonance being they're not in harmony, they're clashing with each other. So these are points in the game or in the overall construction of the game uh, where the storytelling conflicts with the gameplay. A big example in a recent AAA title would be the Uncharted series, uh, where Nathan Drake is this kind of like fun, lighthearted guy, just seems like an overall nice dude in the cutscenes and in the back and forth dialogue during gameplay. But in the actual gameplay, your primary action is using a gun and or your own hands to kill people. And it's all done in the name of fun adventuring, like Indiana Jones style. But when the player actually thinks about it, it paints a much darker picture than what's actually being depicted in the game. And this is because the the gameplay, it just is is much more violent than what one would expect i guess in something that's like lighthearted fun yeah another example of this this sort of dissonance would be situations where the player intent or player agency is violated during storytelling moments so for example you go through an entire level blocking hundreds of attacks and then the cutscene is the one time you get stabbed and you're out of control you can't avoid it or in order to progress in the game, you have to do some bad thing that you know is bad and you don't want to do it, but because they need the character, your character, to do it in order for the story to progress, you are forced to do this thing you don't want to do. That's another example of this dissonance. Yeah. Take uh, 
I feel like losing boss fights is another big example of this. Um, yeah. And we saw this in like Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Um, going into a boss fight, from a gameplay standpoint, you think, My, I want to win this thing. That's how I'm going to progress. And being forced to just like watch your health bar get lowered and lowered is often very frustrating. Um, especially because that's the only way to progress in those scenarios. Something else that all games uh, suffer from if they involve narrative is keeping the player engaged. Um, for non-VR games, you know, the cinematic or cinematic moment is happening on the screen. If you don't have control, then it's straight up watching a movie. If you do have some control, it's usually like a quick time event. Uh, which we saw like all over Spider-Man 3, where it's just like hit X to do this thing at the right time. And then, you know, clicking the the joysticks to, you know, gouge someone's eyes out in the middle of this cutscene, that type of thing. But of course, uh, there's a really good reason why games tend to use these cinematic cutscenes or areas of limited interactivity. And it's because it's very difficult to give the player full agency within a storytelling moment when you're trying to tell a specific narrative beat it's usually pretty linear you're trying to hit certain emotional moments and letting the player look anywhere they want or like you know attack anyone they want would totally violate that and so it's very difficult to find moments when gameplay and narrative coincide yeah and i think a great example of gameplay and narrative coinciding in a more recent title uh, i've played via game pass on pc was a plague tale innocence uh brother sister duo brother uh has some ability and the sister must hold the brother in a in a soothing manner because that's the way their mother like soothed the young brother when he was ha like either getting scared or having headaches so when it comes to the gameplay side of things they intentionally slow the character down they make the two characters kind of like hug and like you're able to use the powers that way and it totally makes sense within the story of like oh okay so these powers would run wild or they would like hurt this kid too much if i wasn't taking the role of like motherly caretaker for him now that the mother is out of the picture at the current point in the game that is some great ludo narrative harmony in my opinion so these are some of the issues that games run into in general but vr games face extra challenges so you know we we mentioned narrative moments as cinematic cutscenes. well this is kind of impossible in vr games in the same way that non-vr games use it because non-vr games take place on a screen which is also the same way that movies are experienced and so you games can leverage cinematic techniques like framing or you know cuts between different camera angles to great effect a great example is like all naughty dog games you know they basically have film directors in addition to uh the people working on the gameplay i would say most sony games yeah. <laughs> most first party sony games at this point practically have film directors as their cinematic directors but vr games can't do this you can't take away the player's view comfortably or if you do it's relatively ineffective as a storytelling technique and also another big issue is that in a non-vr game there's a large amount of abstraction between the game world and the player they're usually using a mouse and keyboard or a gamepad controller and in this 
it's very abstract things like I hit a button and my guy does a big sweeping attack. And then you can leverage that and in cutscenes you can have quick time events when I press that button and instead of doing an attack, he mounts the creature and stabs him a bunch and takes him down in a really cool way. So they, the game intentionally shifts this boundary of, of how the player interacts with the world. But this really doesn't work in VR because you're still in your body all the time. And it is very disorienting to suddenly have the player interacting with the world in a different way than you, you've set up the expectation. Um, it's just not a f usually not effective as a storytelling technique. There are limited moments when it works, and we'll get into that later in the episode. Needless to say, VR games have additional narrative issues, uh, and they're also more expensive to make overall. And so the resources that are going to be contributed to the narrative and, and the storytelling is are going to be more constrained proportionally. Um, so this is a huge issue. And one way to get around this big issue of storytelling being more difficult and more expensive is just to pick stories and settings that get around it, you know, don't have human characters or, you know, don't have characters at all, you know, find other ways to pull the emotional strings of the player. But as humans, we like humans, and we want to see humans in our stories. And so it's important to look at how we can push the state of the art when it comes to telling those kinds of stories in VR games. You know, obviously the the ultimate ideal of what we would want to do in VR is to have perfect humans and completely match the expectations that players have, have them be able to do anything, talk in any way to these characters. But obviously this is impossible, both from a technological standpoint, but also we want to tell a specific emotional journey and if the player can do anything then they can easily deviate from that track and and so in order to tell a specific story things must be constrained so in this episode today we're going to look at how within the constraints of current technology the time and money available to developers as well as the narrative intent of the specific story they're trying to tell we're looking at the best ways that developers of VR games can tell great human focused stories um, we're going to be looking at two games in particular that set a high benchmark, Lone Echo and Half-Life Alex. We're going to try to restrict ourselves to the most important aspects of these games, as we could probably talk for many hours about these two games. Yeah, definitely. Lone Echo is a game that came out a while ago. It was made by Ready at Dawn. Uh, you are a robot, uh, Echo Unit 1, or affectionately named Jack, by Olivia Rhodes, who is the captain of the mining installation that you're on near the Rings of Saturn. And the story follows you and Olivia as you manage a crisis that involves a strange space anomaly that disrupts a bunch of systems on your mining installation yeah, and this is primarily done through the kind of like action adventure genre. This isn't going to be a first person shooter game and it's not too too heavy on the puzzles. Uh so you'll be kind of you'll be moving around from like set piece to set piece doing some light puzzling and then seeing like new cool shit. Real fun time. Recommend picking it up. Yeah, it set the gold standard for environment interaction and storytelling and quite a number of things. And it came out in 2018, I think. 2017. 
2017. Okay. As far as I recall, it was like one of, if not the first big, big like Oculus game to come out in terms of like quote unquote AAA quality. Yeah. And it still holds up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Jumping into Lone Echo, uh, I think they do a really good job on the storytelling front through their dialogue. And this is something somewhat similar with Half-Life Alex, but I think, uh, a different thing here is the dialogue is written like a conversation, but the players are often prompted to reply in the conversation. Uh, so this is like via a little iPad thing. This is conveyed by a UI marker in like the bottom left of your screen that has a little speech bubble. And that tells you to bring up an iPad, which you can like then select what dialogue option you want to you want to say to the other character and this makes sense from from like the perspective of being a robot uh i did find it a little bit annoying though at times because of how many times i needed to like bring up the ipad or like if the cutscene ran a little long i would kind of get distracted play with something and then be like oh this this like dialogue thing popped up. Do I really have to like mess with it right now? And you can choose to ignore it if you want, but I don't know. I I felt like I would be losing out if I did ignore it. So yeah. So like I guess choosing dialogue options is a problem to solve in VR. And I kind of like the solution in Lone Echo because, and this is intentional. It mirrors the way that we interact with smartphones. Uh, you know, pulling up a thing that you have with you all the time and and touching an option on a screen um so it's of course weird that you're doing that in order to choose spoken dialogue but at least to me there isn't an obvious great solution for picking branches in what you want to say in vr yeah i think it's something that requires a lot more iteration like you almost need to make that problem like the core of your project in order to figure out like the best solution mm -hmm. so i did like um i will say how much lone echo provided options not only in the specific dialogue trees uh but in in the way that you can talk about things in the environment you can look at an object and comment on it and sort of like bring it into the conversation a little bit i thought that was really effective in giving the player more control over the conversation more than just giving them dialogue options i agree yeah that that made me feel a great sense of like agency as a player mm -hmm. being able to uh like when i'm when i'm sailing through this like eerie ship and i find some sort of pillar and i'm like oh this is interesting like and then i see a little speech bubble above it anything that you see in that game that you think like oh this is interesting like it will tend to have a little speech bubble above it which will either fill in a bit of the world by giving you that information or like or it continues the conversation but in a more natural way because it's follow because you're soft guiding the conversation by like commenting on the world around you which uh yeah that's pretty neat um one thing in regards to the dialogue and having the prompts and stuff, since we're talking about it, uh, one thing I thought was really good and almost seamless was uh, some of the cinematic moments. For me, I think I most remember it at like towards the very end of the game, which I don't want to spoil like spoil outright just yet. But there were some cinematic moments where 
the conversation would progress without you needing to like say you know press what you want to say on the ipad like your character would just say it i'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. and uh and that felt great and i say like it was almost seamless because now i'm like trying to like really think back and remember whether (laughs) whether or not i was just so in the moment i was like pressing the ipad screen quickly but no i don't think that was the case i think like jack the robot character you play as he he talks for himself at at some points and i think most of these points are when you are interacting with um with things right so i think that's just a testament to just the writing in the game like it's effective at building up these characters and and you start to inhabit this like robot character and and sort of align yourself emotionally with him and so having those moments where he speaks without you choosing but it feels natural is amazing um i think another example of that is there's a at least two moments um in the game where it sort of emotionally tests you by putting the companion character npc in danger and and just there's not actually anything you can do, but you still react. It still like tugs on your heartstrings. Yeah, a hundred percent. So a great thing to add on to tugging at the heartstrings is the lead up towards the final beat of the game. Um, your companion character, Olivia, Captain Olivia Rhodes, she's in some danger and is kind of like passing out every so often. So as you're as, and she's like slow, she's like, she's going way slower than she, than she usually does, which is to say you don't travel with her very often. So you don't notice it, but you notice she's moving much more slowly and she's passing out every now and then. And in order to continue like through the hallways and stuff, you need to like float back to her and then like open up the dialogue tree and, and select like a uh, call to her, which like wakes her up and she's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll keep going. Which is strong to me because I had so recently played spirit fairer which did the exact same thing for uh, one of their characters, which was supposed to represent like an elderly lady with dementia. Uh, you needed to like up you needed to go to her and like grab her hand and walk her to a part of the level. And so I got that same feeling of like of like foreboding, oh no, like when I had to do this to Olivia and uh, that I felt that was like a great storytelling moment mixed in with like the gameplay of it because you know you are you're taking her to this specific location so gameplay wise you're just navigating that makes sense and you're using the dialogue tree to like wake her up something that presented friction or sort of immersion breaking was my natural instinct to kind of pat somebody who is passed out so I like <laughs> my my first instinct for waking up Olivia was like to pat her back or like to fucking like punch her head. <laughs> Just anything to sort of shake anything to sort of shake someone awake. Right. I knew I was playing a game, but then my hand just straight up like clips through the person's body and I'm and that's when I'm like, Oh, yep, it's a game. I guess I just have to open up the dialogue tree and wake her up now. Yeah. The interesting thing is I actually have like a false memory of in that sequence needing to pick her up and like carry her unconscious body parts of the ways <laughs> that definitely doesn't happen <laughs> right and so i guess that's just like you know at the end of the day i think these small 
failures to acknowledge the like full range of the the player's actions could be fine as long as you still land those emotional beats but it helps to plan these scenarios where the player action feeds seamlessly into the the narrative moment such as you know calling to them with the dialogue choice yeah i guess i was overall impressed with the way that the game chose its aspects of the story carefully in order to not overextend itself right there's one human character in the whole story and for a lot of the time it's just you and that npc and you build up a rapport and you do so by performing activities side by side that sort of cooperative action helps build an emotional bond and the the way the dialogue option actually feeds into the building uh, relationship of like are you a robot or do you actually have emotions and are you friends with this human uh you know so you have the two two options usually in in dialogue where you can play up the like robotic straight man or you know be a little more human in your interaction like all that stuff contributes towards the emotional impact of the game and so it's it's super important for any game to pick your battles and not overextend yourself narratively yeah i think something the game does for that robo to human narrative turn is when the accident happens and suddenly uh olivia rhodes goes missing as far as I'm recalling, I think like the the dialogue from Jack becomes much more human, like right out the gates. Hmm. I mean, it's also your prime directive is to make sure the captain is safe. But like your initial dialogue options as soon as you like wake up are are to like call for Olivia like over and over. And then like you can hear in, in Jack's like voice acting that when he talks to the mother computer of the ship, like he is he's worried and when she says like oh i can't have you do this your two options aren't like obey or disobey your two options are this is no time for protocol or our prime directive is saving the captain so it's like you're you can still approach it in a robot way or like add more human flair to it but at the base level you get the sense of like oh like this character has lost someone important to them and Obviously, you can still tie that to the prime directive thing, but through their through the tone and the voice acting, it sounds like someone has like lost their friend and is very worried, regardless of which option you pick. Right. Which I think is very cool. Um, something I thought was nice uh, about the gameplay part of things, kind of going back to your commenting, uh, your highlight of the commenting on things in the world around you. Mm-hmm. I really liked it when conversation felt like it continued seamlessly while or after objectives were completed. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is kind of like two pros to Lone Echo. Uh, I'm going to highlight, say, the reactor room as my example here. So in this reactor room, it's like a big room. You have two control panels, but you need to go into the reactor room and actually fly around and fix some generators by like recharging batteries. If memory serves me, there were there was a conversation happening when you got into the room that explained what you needed to do in the reactor room in order to make it work. And then once you actually went into the reactor room and you're flying around like grabbing batteries and slowly making your way to the rechargers and stuff, Jack and Atlas, the, the new mother computer thing, they're having a back and forth without you needing to give iPad input 
So like there is filler conversation happening that you can choose to listen to, but more likely than not, you're going to be more focused on the objective at hand. I will say that probably feeds into my biggest complaint about it, which is and this is something that many, many, many games suffer from. So it's not just Lone Echo, but there are moments when you get this feeling of just sort of being talked at. It's like lecture moments where the dialogue is going on and like you get the point, but you still have to get through it. And like that can become very irritating if it happens too much. Yeah. Fortunately, Lone Echo, at least you're you always have your mobility. You can always move around the environment. Uh, except for specific points at the beginning where you're locked in. And there's always like stuff to touch and play with and look at. And so that certainly eases the boredom to some extent. But it's something that is just a endemic issue, especially in VR games, where it's just like, oh, I'm like sitting here listening to people talk at me. This is so unnatural. Yeah, oddly enough, I felt that most often when I was in a like conversation, when I was actually in the room with Olivia and or Atlas, like any cutscene where I was just like talking to someone that was in the same room as me was most of the time like so boring. And I, especially if I had to like replay it, like I just was like, okay, I got it. I get the cutscene. Like, where should I float to like be able to see all the characters in a proper light? Again, going to the convention of framing for cinematic techniques. Like if I'm standing around in the conversation and like Olivia's all the way to my far right and Atlas is all the way to my far left and they're talking, I'm practically watching a tennis match, like jerking <laughs> my head left and right. And then I'll like fly myself to a different position where maybe I could look at both of them. But when I do that, I'm still consciously thinking like, man, this cutscene's taking fucking long and I'm like not really doing anything. And yeah. sometimes they try to fix this by having moments where like the master computer will say, hey, interact with this thing, like upload me to this section. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I'll do it because I know it's going to progress the cutscene, but it's not like I'm actually doing anything here. Right. I think the key there, and this is just how you like get past that issue in general, is there's always have something for the player, something meaningful for the player to do while these conversations are happening. Because, like, it just totally sucks to sit there and listen to something, regardless yeah. of how engaging it is. So as long as there's something for the player to do or somewhere for the player to go and having that navigation from point A to point B be sort of challenging, that goes a long way towards alleviating those points of just like, oh, my God, get on with it. Yeah, that cinematic moment that I'm referring to is also like the first time you see Olivia after she has like disappeared so it almost seemed if i could like inject one thing into that cinematic to make it more compelling it probably would be to tend to olivia in some way like the jack has a scanner that you use to activate and scan so many things in the environment like i would have said hey use that to scan her bio metrics whatever Ooh, like that's a good idea you know, yeah, see if she has any body parts injured, like make it into a little x-ray, you know, check her vitals, that type of thing. That all sounds good. And would, if anything, it would tip you off to what the later problem turns out to be with Olivia. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that would be my first things first to like put into that is like, just get, give me something important to do, make it easy, but fun. 
So one thing I wanted to bring up in regards to the framing for cinematics and stuff, all the framing effort was put into the exterior space moments. So either when you're in the bridge, like staring out at the anomaly, they more or less like situated the captain's bridge to be like a movie theater type view. Mm -hmm. So when you see the space anomaly from the bridge, it's like nice and centered. You can see all the shit around it. It's like framed well. When you're trying to help Olivia free her leg from whatever the hell is happening in that anomaly moment, the way Olivia is positioned and the way everything is set is set intentionally so that your view is looking at Olivia and behind Olivia is the anomaly. Like that was intentionally framed that way. And then at the very end, when you're in the captain's bridge and you see the the ship approach and they make contact with you, that is also, you know, again, using the captain's bridge viewport as sort of a more cinema framing situation. I found it both to be at times cool, but at other times underwhelming, like seeing anything from like miles away through like the, the viewport of the captain's quarters feels underwhelming to me because it doesn't necessarily most of the time it doesn't carry the scale that say being just outside the ship trying to help olivia free herself like that had a better sense of scale yeah um well one of the one of the problems is that uh and this is basically a hardware limitation is because these displays are made of pixels there's actually like a maximum distance that you can represent because the distance between two particular pixels it, it essentially imposes a maximum distance where you can have parallax, uh, where your eyes can stereoscopically pick up like a difference. Hmm. And I don't recall the specific number, but I want to say it's on the order of like 30 or 60 meters with current displays. So basically anything beyond that will appear as just a flat like sky sphere, basically. So you can't tell the difference between something that's a hundred meters away and a kilometer away. And so that really, you know, throws a wrench in trying to communicate huge distances, especially when the player isn't moving through the space. And so having something close stretching out into the distance helps because now there's something close and it's getting farther and farther and farther away and you can see that stretch away. So that's why being on the outside of the ship on the surface is maybe more impactful than seeing something big that's very far away. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was I was going to say like the well, what you basically just explained was like why seeing the anomaly from from afar kind of go wonky is like mildly cool, but you know, it's it's so far from a distance you're like whatever. And then when the when that new ship shows up, it's like, "Whoa, like what the fuck?" because it is I think it's inhabiting both spaces almost and it, and that's what makes it so like wow. Yeah. Like it it pierces your foreground while being big enough to actually go all the way back to where the anomaly is. Yeah. And uh that makes it all the more like whoa when you're slowly approaching it on the space cars. I always forget what they're called, but the the approach to the ship was a really cool cinematic moment like lots of lots of great like build up and sort of atmosphere building through like minimal conversation yeah let's speak about the revered the long awaited half-life alex i mean we talk about it like every episode 
but <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's talk about half-life alex and its storytelling i think we can immediately say first and foremost that most of if not all the dialogue between characters is is great and feels natural it's written in a very conversational way I will say specifically for Alex and Russ's conversations, because that's the stuff I remember the most. Yeah. I mean, it's a good blend of, of humor and building rapport between the characters, building their personalities up and also delivering important narrative dramatic beats. Yeah. At least in my experience, the conversations between Alex and Russ kept me engaged through and through even though I did not have agency in what I was going to say, or rather what Alex was going to say and how she was going to say it, which kind of creates an interesting dynamic because as Jack, I might describe my experience as I said this, I said that, but in Half-Life Alex, I sort of know that I am just looking through the eyes of Alex and like controlling her body, whereas she herself is like separate from me within the narrative. Yeah, and I know a lot of people found that strange because like in a lot of games, non-VR games, sure, you're playing a character that isn't you. You're just you're watching a story. But in VR, you you are you. You're in the world. It's sort of your body. And so it's very strange if that who you are to the other people in the world is separate from who you are internally, so to speak. Although I will say, in the same way that Lone Echo provides options for you to comment on things around the environment, Half-Life Alex does have a number of moments where uh, Alex will comment on things that the players that the player does. So, like the example off the top of my head is there's this moment where you can drop a grenade off of a gantry down into an area below and kill some enemies, and she'll make a She'll quip about it, like, oh, look out below, or something like that. Yeah. And to add on to that line of thought, there are moments in cinematic beats where you can grab a prop from the environment and, like, it, or rather, to progress the cinematic, you will have to interact with something in the environment or you will have to use some sort of prop in the environment. Earliest example of this would be when Russell is giving you the heist plan, basically explaining the entire arc of the game to you <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, he says, grab anything in the room and put it here. And I liken that to almost to like jack being told hey like press this button sequence or jack like commenting on something in the room and that like progressing the scene but in this case you're like grabbing a prop and like just using it as a marker for yourself yeah i think the the flip side of that where it falls apart a little bit is there were a couple of moments where you had to interact with something in order to progress the story but it didn't necessarily feel like you had a choice or you know it ran into some of that ludo narrative dissonance and the moment that really jumps out to me is there's a moment when you're uh, presented with a giant complicated control panel mm -hmm. and honestly it doesn't matter how you interact with this thing it just causes the same thing to happen after you interact mm -hmm. with it enough and like as a player it's fairly obvious that that's the case but like at, in game the characters are like oh like this is so complicated Oop, not that not that oh whoops it's like okay come on don't make me do this yeah it's the forced failure coming back but this time they're trying to be cheeky about it yeah um that beat red mixed to me like i almost fell for it being a puzzle 
And then, like, you know, when I saw the ship start to do its thing, I'm like, okay, well, definitely, you know, no no puzzle is going to go like this unless they... Unless they're like, hey, we're just going to straight kill you for getting this puzzle wrong, which I honestly would have such respect for. Mm-hmm. I do not mind that. If I like failed the puzzle and it had a catastrophic effect that blew up all of City 17 and I died, that's cool. If anything, that's actually what would make the scene better for me. Because like you said, it's a moment where, okay, if I'm really sucked into the story, then this is going to click for me. But if I am not... If I'm not even like halfway clicked into the story, then I'm just going to fucking like mess with anything on this panel and not really care, uh, which deflates the scene a little bit. But maybe they lean on the consequence of that to bring the gravity of the situation back. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important conversation is to what extent can we have gameplay consequences for narrative moments? Both Lone Echo and Half-Life Alex basically don't have failure modes for narrative moments. Uh, it's just straight linear. Like, you can't screw up, really. Versus, off the top of my head, Defector blends that where you can fail for choosing certain dialogue options in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, obviously much more difficult to code that into the game to have all that content of, like, you know, oh, you do this thing wrong, and so we do like some spectacular failure sequence and then reset the player. You know, that's extra content to do that, like, really doesn't have any impact beyond maybe immersing the player a little bit more and getting them engaged with the narrative, which is important. Yeah. But also, it could be perceived as annoying if a player just wants to experience the story to be told and not have to like reset because they screwed up. Yeah. I think jumping to a slightly different note something that both lone echo and alex do but alex does better is bringing in tertiary characters to flesh out your world Mm. so one of the most memorable goofy moments from lone echo for me was finding a robot on one of the mining areas there's there's this robot that's like broken and you piece him back together and he thinks that the cave he is in is the bridge of the ship (laughs) And, and so he's polishing like these stalactites and like these rock walls and he's like yeah this is the bridge of the ship you know last the last command i got was uh erasing captain rhodes's internet history like they literally <laughs> said that and i was like that is that's actually that's actually funny i was not expecting to like hear that in this type of game because it takes itself like seriously mm-hmm. um and that like well that stands out to me throughout throughout everything i've played of that game like that moment stands out to me but it, it doesn't like fill in the world all too much mm-hmm. you just kind of get a fun story whereas in the chapter jeff in Half-Life Alex, you get slowly introduced to Jeff and the world gets filled in a little bit via this construction guy whose name I forget. I just know him as the construction man. I don't think he's named. Probably not. <laughs> I, I but 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 uh no, I, feel I think like he, he is, is though cuz yeah. I feel like I feel like Alex Introduces was like, oh, "I'm Alex." Yeah. Even though you can't say it. I feel oh, name probably like Damn Dave it. or something. I don't know. Yeah, Steve. that 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 moment honestly could have used like a wave or something like that. Just Ooh, like how, yeah. So slight, slight, slight detour. We're gonna we're gonna inception this topic real quick. That could have used a wave for like, hey, I'm Alex. You know, whatever. The same way the elevator could have actually like made you put your hands up or you get shot by the combine. Mm-hmm. In that elevator, you could just do whatever the hell you want. Anyway, jumping back, 
now to building out the world using your tertiary characters. Let's say Dave, the construction man, you save him from something, uh, which is how you unblock your path. So that's cool. Like you, you build, you, you build up the, the relationship initially by like, Hey, this person is in, is in trouble. Me as a human and me as a, you know, good leaning protagonist will want to free this character. And in return, now I can progress. That's cool. Oh, also they're going to give me some information about a hazard coming up. That's weird. And they're going to give me a little bit more information. Okay. So even though they're more or less only explaining like, Hey, this gameplay mechanic is coming up. That gameplay mechanic is a character within the world. I think he sort of explains a little bit of his history with Jeff. Like he's like, yeah, I know I've known Jeff for a bit or blah, blah, blah. So you kind of like, it's more of a side story than just a robot got broken out here. It's like, oh, there there maybe used to be like a couple of people here and I'm like stumbling on the last person. Right. I guess so more broadly, it sounds like you want some amount of reciprocity from characters, right? Like that's what makes it meaningful is I helped him. He helps me in an actual gameplay meaningful way. And then like building that rapport. Yeah. And then giving me a little bit more right in that tidbit of information of like, yo, watch out for Jeff up ahead or like, Hey, like cover your mouth when like, when you're around these things in the world, I know that's a gameplay thing, but that's also integrated into the world. And he's like, he is filling in that bit of world info for me rather than Russell telling me it or me looking at a piece of paper to read it. And just to dive a little bit deeper into that, I think that taps into, you know, you talk a lot about interaction with NPCs, whether it's a wave or a high five or, or you know, being hand, handed up. something, thumbs up, etc. I think it's less about actually contacting the character and and sort of grounding yourself on them like with a high five and more just the exchange of uh, an action or an item or or some sort of information uh, in Lone Echo for example there's a moment where in the beginning where she passes a uh, like little drone over to you she like chucks it across the room and then you grab it out of the air yeah and like that's just as effective at having this like reciprocal element as you know another example is like in the first first contact demo i think it's called the like oculus thing with the retro future robot and you like it's like oh it's yeah, like very yeah. uh timid and you have to like give it a wave and be like no it's okay like come over here those moments really accentuate the like oh this is a a reactive character that we have a back and forth they're not just doing actions at me or i'm not just doing actions at them yeah yeah it's definitely the reactivity of a character often is like the most human part of them and there are there are times where like you can tell it's like clearly like coded in and then other points where you're well, also the context uh, and when you bump into these sets up, whether you think or notice it is like just a scripted thing or, or what have you. So what I'll bring up is actually Lone Echo. In terms of reactivity in Lone Echo, as Captain Olivia and I were flying around uh, the garden section or whatever, I was trying to like keep up with her. So I like managed to like grab onto her as she was like flying away from me. Uh, just doing her thing in the cutscene, and and what I hadn't realized is like I grabbed onto her butt, so I was hanging on to her left butt cheek for like five seconds or so as she like drifted across the air, and then like, and then like I think she like 
turned and like swatted my hand and was like something up jack or something <laughs> like that and i and i and i and like i totally didn't realize what had happened and i was like oh shit oh right <laughs> my bad i know that's a canned response and i didn't mean i like did not mean to do that but it's funny we are in this situation yeah and another example of that is like if you run into her at high speed she'll be like oof or like oh it got me good um or if you look at her with your like headlamp on she'll yeah she says can you turn it off yeah exactly that kind of thing so in your opinion do those small responses add to the immersiveness of the experience or does it detract because it sets an expectation that they will react that the npc will react to your actions but then when you go and you start climbing all over her face she isn't like what the fuck is wrong with you and that takes you out of it uh i think you can approach it kind of at like two different maybe two different levels in a sense like i think it's better i definitely think it's better when the characters react to you but it doesn't necessarily have to be oh the character must react to me putting my hand on their shoulder i think in some cases in most cases actually it's more rewarding when you have the characters react to you for performing some action in the cinematic so like in half-life alex like if you dodge Jeff and and you know get some piece of the puzzle and like narrowly escape, you hearing Russell either say like you got the thing, I'll get the hell out of there, or saying like oh that was a close one, like I was super worried for you after that, like that feels a little more reward even though the character present isn't presence isn't there, that's a little more rewarding than those barks basically saying like hey don't don't touch me or like it's almost like those are kind of like uh the the like hey is everything okay jack or like uh can you please turn the light off that's those are good i want those to be included but you need a myriad of those barks to keep it feeling natural and also setting up a so what was i saying conversation continuation system right but that costs so much to do absolutely it costs so much to do as it stands as far as i recall when olivia is in the middle of a cutscene and just talking and stuff you you can she won't stop if you're like shining a light in her face like point blank range or if you're like holding on to her in some way she won't go like is something wrong anyway what was i saying or like hey mm-hmm. stop that what was i saying obviously all of this stuff we're talking about it's it's all a matter of like how much money you have and how much can you paint the box that like your game fits within Mm -hmm. and the the simple thing of having like five different responses to jack touched my butt for a few seconds that's a pretty penny right there just having five responses for that scenario so then again to matt's point like the exponential inflation of like oh let's have something for if the player touches their shoulder let's have something for if the player like pokes the 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 npc's eye like you can only stretch it so far if you're if you're clever you find ways within your context that you can like avoid those edge cases like if captain olivia for instance is wearing a helmet at all times you can't poke her eye you can't try to pick her nose you can't put your thumb in her mouth when she's talking because you know you got a helmet blocking you that's leaning into your your premise and your setting uh but that takes brainstorming time and that is spending employee money and and man hours on the project of course so you just got to do the best with what you got yeah if i had to 
work that into like maybe one of the big takeaways from this conversation is like you got to pick your scope very intentionally and very strategically because having a human npc that is in front of you with facial animations like that's a big thing having branching dialogue choices that's a big thing having multiple characters having good writing these are all adding to the expense uh you know having spectacular animated moments that you know ground you into the world or what etc so like choosing what you want to do with your story is very important because if you have just one character and like maybe you don't see them face to face that much you know picking that sort of small scope lets you boost the quality of other things it lets you have great writing or have more dialogue quips over the radio that react to your actions or you know have higher quality facial animations for the small moments when you do see the npc etc so like that's that's a big takeaway is like you we have to pick our battles especially at this point in in how nascent the technology is yeah i think some other takeaways from this conversation overall on top of scoping your game in your story is to pick the specific battles meaning which envelope or which part of the envelope of vr do you want to push so hearkening back to what we said uh some some time ago in this episode picking that project and centering it around like oh i'm gonna make my characters extra reactionary like as far as they can be in the story and that being like the center tech of your game or picking like hey maybe i want to do a more natural take on the dialogue tree and that being the sort of center problem of your game just looking at those things and by picking your battles meaning like yes yeah, sink the bulk of resources or brain power into figuring out how to iterate on that in such that it feels good and contributing that to the sort of like vr medium as a whole so that later games can learn from that build from that the way asgard's wrath and half-life alex and say maybe boneworks they've all looked at past games like lone echo and and other vr stuff and they learned from that and they did their own take so picking your battles and the other thing i think we really highlighted was having your actors be reactionary and conversational as opposed to stoic and lecturing right it's important that your story capture your audience emotionally and there's a number of ways that you can do that but one of the best is by engaging the player through having an interaction where the, the world responds to you and you have some ability to respond to the world and so, you know, tying into your comment about picking your battle, I think it's important to establish some baseline for everything. Ideally, everything is good. But what you should do is cut away as many requirements as possible so that you can make one thing really good and then communicate to the player the expectation that like, oh, maybe NPCs won't respond to you chucking objects at them, but they will respond to you know how well you do this gameplay action and like keeping those boundaries clear i think is important so that you know players aren't surprised that like oh that one time the npc made a comment when i held on to their butt but the other times they were just totally impassive and unresponsive that's worse than just having them be unresponsive all the time yeah 
one final takeaway I would add is just looping back to the comment we had about reciprocity of mm-hmm. building those NPC relationships where they do something meaningful for me and I do something meaningful for them. And that makes it feel like a human relationship more than just like them talking at me and I talk at them. And then, oh, don't you like this character so much? Like if they genuinely help me out even a little bit and like I spend some time being helpful towards them, that's going to build an emotional bond very effectively. Yeah, especially in the VR space more so than the non-VR space because your body, for the most part, is going to be doing the gameplay actions. So if if and when Captain Olivia says like she's going to cover... Or, or rather, if Captain Olivia says, hey, I've got a plasma cutter and you've got 20 things to cut open, like I'm going to cut 10 on this side of the room, you cut 10 on this side of the room, Yeah, that feels good. Yeah. Because even though I know like, hey, this is probably like scripted and stuff, I'm still thinking like, well, thank goodness I don't need to like push my arms and like fly around 20 different things. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm being helped out. Someone's taking the literal load off my shoulders. It's nice. All right, listener, I hope that you've found this conversation interesting. I certainly have. You know, it was neat to talk about these two games and and explore some of the storytelling techniques in them. If you would like to discuss these games more and the way that they perform their storytelling or perhaps bring additional games into the conversation, you should head over to our Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash headmountedpodcast, and leave a comment on the post for this episode. We want to see your thoughts. We want to have some good conversations about video games. So whatever you want to bring to the mix about these cinematics and maybe some of your own VR experience, you know, let us know. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please visit headmountedpodcast.com and sign up for our email list to get notified about new episodes. You can listen to the show on YouTube or Spotify or anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to discuss this episode or suggest future topics, visit our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash headmountedpodcast. If you really like listening to the show and you want to help us out, you can go and follow our Twitter at MountedHead or follow our Facebook page at HeadMountedPodcast. But most importantly, you can tell your friends that you think would be interested. You can tell them about this podcast. And lastly, thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll see you at the next Head Mounted Destination.